Coming up next, ho, 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 I have a machine gun. Hey everybody, this is Nathan. <laughs> Sorry, that intro, <laughs> that little pre-credits thing sucked. <laughs> Die Hard is the greatest Jake. Christmas movie yeah. of all time. Ask me what my favorite Christmas movie is, what's Jake. Your fa- what's your favorite Christmas movie? It's Die Hard, because it's the best Christmas movie, man. You're so cool, Nathan. Yeah, like, I'm the first person that ever said that. Because it's got Alan Rickman in it, and he says, ho, ho, ho. And, and he has a machine gun. Or yeah. no, Bruce Willis has a machine gun, and he yeah. writes it on the... Yeah, but Alan Rickman reads it out loud. Yeah, I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. Classic line from the best Christmas movie. Like, I don't watch It's a Wonderful Life or The Grinch or... Like, you'd expect me to like a a movie that's, like, about Christmas and full of Christmas, but actually, I'm more cool and clever than that. I, like, uh, Die Hard. Shut up. You really do like Die Hard. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sure, everybody likes Die Hard. But when I see someone on Facebook, which I do approximately 100 times a Christmas season, see someone... The only good Christmas movie is Die Hard. Or Gremlins. Gremlins is kind of a dark horse. But the idea is you take something violent and horrible and you say that you like that instead of an actual Christmas movie that people like. And that gives you some some cred or something like that. As somebody who's been deeply wounded. Yeah. and Well, yeah. As someone who deserves to be deeply wounded. <laughs> Dropped off a building like Hans Gruber. Disclaimer, I don't really want people to be dropped off a building like Hans Gruber. I, I saw a, uh, a Hans Gruber advent calendar thing. It was pretty amazing. They made the building 25 stories. And so each day he falls like another flight. Oh, that's fun. And so on Christmas Day, he dances. I hope that wasn't the, one of the terrorists. The hilarious line that the <laughs> quip that the... One of the Johnsons, I think, has, because um, there's Johnson and Johnson in that movie, and I think one of them says, I hope that was one of the terrorists. That movie has a lot of moments where you think the producers probably were like, can we put in another quip there? People <laughs> like quips. <laughs> <laughs> so they're always putting stuff in like that. And it has some of the most gratuitous late 80s, early 90s nudity kind of stuff of any movie where you just feel, again, like the producer was like, yeah, let's put in a girl there. That'd be, people like girls, right? <sighs> So if you've only seen Die Hard recently on TV and you're thinking about watching it with Jake Menzel and his wife, <laughs> wouldn't necessarily recommend it. <laughs> Might be a little uh, more dirty and crass and stuff than you remember. Possible that's a thing that has happened. Yeah. Brandon. Brandon's not here. Brandon. I haven't even said. Brandon's not Brandon here. Brandon's all like, you have to watch the greatest Christmas movie of all time with, with me. I'm going to bring it over and we're going to watch it. Yeah. All right. Brandon, we trust you. And he brought over Die Hard. And yeah. actually, that that was not, I was not the instigator of that. A old mutual friend of ours was the instigator of that. And what can I say? So folks, you're probably wondering what's going on. And what's going on is that we're doing a Hail Mary. I was trying to think of some like Christmas. Hail Mary. It's spelled M-E-R-R-Y. You got it. Oh, boy. Oh, man. You win. The cleverness. You win the never day. Never stops. Yes. 
Hail Merry Christmas. We're, play, we're doing a Hail Merry Christmas. The reason we're doing that is because of a couple things. Number one, Brandon is sick as a dog yep. right now. Jake, you ran into him at some kind of a thing tonight, right? Yeah, a Christmas program at Lighthouse Christian Academy. You know, you say Christmas and Christian back to back yep. and you start to Lighthouse get Lighthouse Christmas Academy. That's what I was afraid I might have said. Yep. Yeah, Lighthouse Christian Academy and uh, yeah, he looked terrible. Looked yeah. like he wanted to die and I told him he was a wuss for not wanting to be here and he didn't even care. He wasn't even bothered by it. That's how bad he felt. There you go. He called me and said, I want to die. And I said, you're a wuss. Please don't come in. We don't, we don't podcast with wusses. And so he's not here. Yep. Now, that's the first part of the uh, Hail Mary Christmas. The second part of the Hail Mary Christmas is that we had planned to do something similar to our Halloween episodes, where if you'll recall, we did like the five days of Halloween, talked through five different horrible, <laughs> scary stories. <laughs> that we didn't like. That we didn't except, like. Except one of, no, we talked through four horrible, scary stories that we didn't like and one that we did. I would say there are two that I think are good, personally. Shredney Vashtar is actually pretty good. It's not much yeah. of a, anything, but it's good. For what it is, and The, the Willows. Willows is just a stone-cold classic of uncanny literature. A wonderful story. Recommend it. Read it this Christmas if you want to not be in a Christmas place at all, but just be spooky. So we wanted to do a similar thing, and we had the genius idea to go to the people who most understand the Yuletide warmth of the Christmas season, which is the Russians. <laughs> <laughs> so, so. It's a very Russian Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Chekhov. Dostoevsky and uh, and Tolstoy and Tolstoy, who we love, and you know Chekhov's no slouch, and Dostoevsky has his defenders. But we read these three stories, and man, zero for three. And, and we're going to talk about it. But I just want you to understand. I I don't know. It's it's hard to talk about it without talking about it. There's there's no there's no real preamble for it. This yeah. Let's just talk about it. So basically, this is for. We should address another kind of elephant in the room which is this episode is dropping on december 25th so merry christmas merry christmas everybody i'm sorry that you're listening to this <laughs> <laughs> no why would you be sorry well they're happy maybe they're listening they're to sitting around they're like wait a minute guys like the kids are like well the kids open. are wait, the kids have to listen to they this before they get to their presents yeah yeah this is well no this is the first christmas present it's yes like they woke up and the their phone buzz and was like new podcast from the bookening and they're like oh man this truly is Christmas. And so... Right. This is like... It. It's like this comes before everything else. This is like, like the other 52 is... days of the year that we get booking podcasts. Christmas. That's just how they think of it. Yeah. And the kids were like, Daddy, do we have to open our presents? Can't we listen to the booking? Exactly. And Daddy was like, well, first, let me have my coffee and... Mm, maybe a little eggnog, sweetie. I'm going to have to... Put on my slippers really slowly before I start the bookening. Daddy, please let us listen to the bookening. Can we just please listen to Daddy? And then... Well, maybe if you open one present for... No, 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 no. no, no. Don't make us eat breakfast or open presents. We want the bookening. Well, I guess that's what they make eggnog, right? Make mine extra strong, sweetie. Yeah. And so Daddy... He caved. He caved. But Daddy was always going to cave. He just makes a show of it every Christmas. Yeah, he's come on. Yeah, that's his job. He's got to be a little, yeah, a little yeah. grinchy. That's the he's got to like make the kids work for it. You yeah, know, that's just part of the dad role. Yeah, that's 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 what he's there to do is tease the kids and yeah. So is now you are now you children ga listening. gather around. Listen, you'll hear the sound. Gather around, you children. Come of the bookening into the old old story. Yeah, and, and so you're listening to this and. 
you're going to get to hear us talk about how much we didn't care about three Russian stories. And uh, Brandon was going to give some context, but I'm actually I'm not glad that Brandon's not here. But I had already said we don't really want you to do context. The reason being, he's going to do a giant Tolstoy context in the very next episode. episode next week. No, it won't be next week because what will happen is the, oh, no, no, the book list come yeah. out before this. Right? That's already okay. out. Well, the first one, yeah, the book list came out and then the fantasy. Yeah, book list and fantasy and draft is out. The fantasy at- draft was last. Hey, guys, I won, right? Jake, to air is human. People are clamoring for me to write that. <laughs> the true Christmas would be for to air is human I, to be on I every. Think they're clamoring for you to write mine. <laughs> the Witch in the Willows. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell you what, no one's clamoring for is Through the Looking Glass Part Two. <laughs> Sorry, Brandon. <laughs> I really am trying to maintain the uh, illusion, perhaps delusion, that Tara's Human is way better than Through the Looking Glass Part Two. But <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Uh, if you haven't listened to those episodes, folks, I encourage you to listen to those episodes. They're a lot of fun. They're they're more you know if if your speed of booking isn't as goofy, they are. More goofy, but I think they're a very fun goofy. So listen to them. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. We we are here to talk very briefly about these stories. And so let me tell you these Christmas stories that we read. The Chekhov story is called At Christmas Time, and I don't think you actually read this one, did you, Jake? I, did, I didn't because I yeah. Yeah, the Hail Mary Christmas was a complicated thing. Like I said, we were originally going to do three episodes like we did with the Halloween. We did five. We were going to do three separate epi- short episodes. But I think everything that we have to say about these stories actually fits into one one episode. And, and let me close the loop on another thing I was saying, which is the reason I'm happy Brandon isn't here, even though I'm sad Brandon isn't here, is that we don't actually need context because we're going to get a giant Tolstoy context next week. We're going to get a Dostoevsky context that will be quite excellent, I'm sure, yeah, about a year from now. About a year from now when we do uh, Brothers K. Wait, so you're not releasing the episode you recorded with uh, with Brandon on Chekhov? You know what? I'll put it... Behind the paywall. Behind the paywall, yes. There you go. Because um, me and Brandon did record an episode. It was kind of a very hurried episode. Jake was called away on pastor business, and we just were like, well, what can we do? And we did it. So I'm just going to say it's not our finest work, but you, it's got some good insights into this Chekhov story, and you can check... Uh, you can check it off. Yeah, you can check off your desire to listen to this by going to thebookening.com, patreon.com, forward slash thebookening. Now, these other two stories by two colossal geniuses. You could go do it and give a fake dollar. You could give a dollar, listen to it, and then unsubscribe before you pay. Right. That would be a jerk thing to do. Yeah, don't do that. You could do that. But you could. Sign up for 100 bucks a month and tell us a book that you want us to do yeah louis l'amour you can make us read louis l'amour you can make us read and guys while we're just at it mm-hmm. we are so close to making next year the year of tolkien we really are close and uh you guys aren't coming through for us or are you i don't know you're gonna have to come through now we need next year to be the year of tolkien children you know what you have to do you are listening to this podcast before you open your presents tell your parents We don't want presents. You got some receipts there? Pops, moms, take those presents back. Get the cash. Sign up to support the booketing. Give it all to the booketing so that we can get a year of Tolkien. Right. So instead of getting like, you know, 15 measly presents on Christmas Day, big, fat, hairy deal. You can get presents 
every month. In the form of great Tolkien podcasts. Why wouldn't you want that? And maybe your dad, I mean, he's a kind of falling down on the job. He's letting you listen to this before opening your presents, but maybe he'll read you Tolkien. You know what? Actually, I think he's a cool guy. Maybe he'll just read Tolkien he's out loud. He's falling down on his job. He's the coolest dad ever. He's letting them listen to the bookening first well, thing Jake, I just before think, making them open their presents. You know me. I'm a big believer in discipline and order in sober reflection. I, I really think the kids should be opening their presents. You know? Well, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm just for fun. We don't just throw caution to the wind on Dece- every tw- 25th of December, you know? I applaud the dads that are for fun and are putting the booking above present time. Go ahead and snort cocaine, kids. <laughs> it's Christmas. That's Jake's philosophy. <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? Here's some nails. <laughs> the booking. At least half as addicting as cocaine. I'm going to say is 60% that, is addicting as cocaine. The booking 60% is addicting as cocaine. That's next year's t-shirt. That is next year's t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jake does not really believe the kids should snort cocaine on Christmas. Um, any other day, not Christmas. Um, let's, so anyway, with, with all this. Right down to business. <laughs> yep. With all this preamble, with all this preamble out of the way, let's get to the, uh, the amble itself, which is we're going to release this episode with Brandon and Chekhov and everything and no Jake. Behind the paywall. Why would anybody want to listen to that again? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Just they just like to hear fat. <laughs> they like to hear like, they like to listen for the jiggle of fat <laughs> in between different words for the, the, the breath being taken into giant Jabba the Hutt like nostrils. They get a break from the mole rubbing up against the, <laughs> yeah, get a, the it, microphone. They don't always like to get the mole. <laughs> I'm the only good looking guy that does the booking. It's nice. So. Let's talk about these two short stories that we read, Jake. These two wonderful Russian Christmas tales. Yes. (laughs) I think we deserve everything we got, really. So there's one by Dostoevsky called Beggar Boy at Christ's Christmas Tree, (laughs) a real classic of the genre. (laughs) I'm sorry, folks. I guess this has been the year of not positive energy, but I'm hoping for a lot of positive energy next year. And Tolstoy, where love is, God is there also. And the year was full of positive energy. It just, we didn't have a lot of positive energy coming down the final stretch, that's all. Yeah. Well, and that all kind of depends on how you interpret our Brandon, ep- or our Brandon episodes. Narnia episodes. Yeah. Really, it depends on how you interpret Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, yeah, our Narnia episodes, which I maintain are actually more positive than they get credit for. But that's okay. It's Christmas time, and all are welcome. Anyway, we read these two wonderful stories. Jake... What context did you bring? Baggage. Yeah, I'm sorry. What baggage did you bring to Dostoevsky's Beggar Boy at Christ's Christmas Tree and Tolstoy, where love is, God is there also? I have a predisposition to not like Dostoevsky and a predisposition to like Tolstoy, and that's it. I feel pretty much exactly the same way. I have a predisposition predisposition to love Tolstoy and to be pretty impatient with Dostoevsky at best. And, well, how did how did it all pan out for you? <laughs> Read Dostoevsky and I, it had one merit. Uh huh. It was short. It was short. <laughs> and I felt like, man, like uh, what I wondered was like, was this like actually some literal diary journal entry thing that he sketched out? Like he sort of treats it as. And somebody was like, I found this story in one of Dostoevsky's old journals. We're going to publish it because Dostoevsky. Yeah, people like to read things by Dostoevsky. We can make an extra buck, take this random thing he scribbled on a napkin. And then I read, so, you know, my my impression was like, this is the kind of thing that you write in middle school. And I don't know if it's because we have the heritage of all 
of so many short, well-told short, short stories that, and then I read Tolstoy just ready to love it because it's Tolstoy mm-hmm. and, uh, he's the best. It, w- it wasn't great. No, <laughs> I will say it's really hard for me to judge either one of these stories. We should just tell people, I don't think people need to read these stories. So we should, we should just tell people, I guess, skip forward if you don't want to hear the plots of these stories, but Beggar Boy at Christ's Christmas Tree. I bet just based on that title, a lot of our listeners can, can predict guess. exactly what happens. But In the second paragraph, mom dies. The boy then goes, he's a beggar boy and mom's dead. And the boy goes wandering through the streets, starving, hungry, getting colder and colder and getting picked on. and Looking in at the one percenters enjoying their Christmas Yuletide uh, cheer. Went home. It looks so generous and free that he feels like maybe he could go in and they would give him some food. So he walks in the door and they yell at him and somebody sticks a coin in his po- his hand, but he can't hold on to it because his hands are too numb. Oh yeah, his poor trembling fingers drop the coin in it. Then he ends up climbing on a wood pile. He must have fallen asleep or something, but he enters into this lovely dream, the most lovely of lovely dreams. Full of all the children who've ever died on Christmas. And this one year, Christ welcomes them to this special Christmas tree that he made just for them and shares with them. And all their mothers are there. And his mother is there calling for him too. And cut to the next day, the porter finds the boy dead on the woodshed or on the woodpile. And they look for the mom and find her dead in the wherever it was that she was huddled up in. Camera pulls back, Rod Serling smoking a cigarette, says, just another Christmas story on December 25th and in the Twilight Zone. Yep. So that was that story. And Jake had read, I think, two paragraphs of it this afternoon before I left him. And I said, hey, how's he reading like Dostoevsky? And Jake said, I read two paragraphs. It's the second paragraph. And I said, but you can't guess what happens. And he said, uh, the boy walks around like the little matchstick girl and looks in and can't get any purchase. And then he dies and sees a vision of Jesus's Christmas tree. And yeah. His mom's there and stuff. Yep. So then so I'm going to come back and say that I'm not sure we can really be negative to these stories too much. But yeah, the Tolstoy stories. I, I agree with you. So don't hear us being too snarky. It's, it's pretty easy to be snarky because they do seem like so obvious. Hallmark Channel. The Christmas shoes, that dumb song was the other thing I kept thinking of. Like, yeah. this is the kind of thing that a bad country artist would write a song about. Right. Of which I've heard several this year. What about the Tolstoy story? It's better. It's told much more like a parable. Mm-hmm. It's better constructed and better told, but still really painfully obvious what he's doing and where it's going and how it's going to resolve from very early on. It literally feels like, I don't know if they still do this, but when I was a kid, we would go to Sunday school and they would give us these little fold out, fold out things or whatever they were called, you know, little two or three page things that would have little stories that the teacher would read to us, little illustrated stories. It does. And it feels like I, I never, I, I didn't really quite grow up in church, but it does feel like a good little story to read to the kids, mm-hmm. you know, a good little parable, moral that you could read to you know, you're eight year old or something like that. And the basic plot is that an old man prays that Christ would show himself, or no, he gets a vision. What is it? So he's a wi- he's a widower, and 
his son dies, he gets bitter with God, and then a monk shows up, and a monk says, rebukes him, and he starts reading the Bible. Really, the more that he reads the Bible, the more addicted he gets to it, the happier he is, and the more he just wants to be like Jesus. And one day he's reading the Bible, and he falls asleep reading it. Has this like weird dream vision that he sort of writes off, but also can't help not write off, where Jesus says he's going to come and visit him. The next day, he's really eagerly looking for for Jesus, and he's also laughing at himself because this is the dumbest thing ever, but he still just can't help feeling like there's something to this that was real. You know, Tolstoy follows the rule of threes, and you get three, three people that he sees outside and is, as he's looking for Jesus and is either troubled or feels a need to intervene or mm-hmm. be helpful one way or another, and... Poor old man that's freezing. Poor old man who's trying to shovel the walk for people and he brings him in and keeps giving him warm tea and taking care of him and and stuff. And then the next one's uh, uh, a lady with a baby and they're freezing and she, you know, and he brings her in and and she's hungry and needs to nurse. And so he feeds her and lets her nurse. Gives her a shawl for the baby. Gives her a like a frock or something for the baby and then gives her money to go buy her shawl back that's that right. she had to pawn. Right. Then the third person is, uh, it, oh, he sees a old woman, a grandma with an apple basket and she's carrying a, a bunch of chips on her back, mm. wood chips on her back and she stops to because it hurts and sets down her basket and a little boy tries to come and pinch uh, an apple and she catches him and starts beating him. He runs out and intervenes and preaches the message of forgiveness to them. And then the boy gives the apple back and apologizes and he softens her up and she's got kids and grandkids of her own and they hug and they make up and then, and she's afraid they're going to be spoiled. But actually what happens is the boy being forgiven wants to carry the wood chips for her and she wants to give the apple to him and yay, now we're all happy. Yep. And then he goes inside and kind of feels dumb and opens his Bible and has another vision. Does he actually read the verse if you... No, he has the other vision before he reads the verse. It's like he opens to the wrong place and then he has this other vision of, you know, each of the three people are there and they say, you know, don't you know me? Don't you know me? Don't you know me? And then he goes to to the next passage that he's supposed to read and it's, if you've given a cup of cold water in my name, you've... And as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I did see Jesus in yeah. the three people. Yep. He did come to me. And I mm-hmm. turns out, because I didn't want to be like Simon the Pharisee. Nice enough story, I guess. Nice enough story. Liked it better than Dostoevsky. But yeah. the thing I was going to say is these stories. It had, well, it had more humanity to it. Just in, I, I really liked the old man just the same. Like, you know, he yeah. was a guy who he'd been bitter at God and- He'd lost everything, and, and there were just nice details. He, he lost reading. his wife, and then he, you know, put everything into this the the one son that had survived, and then that son died, and then he was mad at God. So there was some actual, yeah. And then he's like trying to repent and figure things out, and then he reads the parable of of the woman who's you know washing Jesus' feet, mm-hmm. and I thought it was really nice that what he didn't say is I'm just like the Pharisee. What he said is, oh, the Pharisee's just like me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's really sweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that Pharisee's just like me. That's like what I, I just wanted my own happiness and I wasn't caring about anybody. And then he got really afraid. Like if Jesus came to me, would I, would I wash his feet? Would I do put oil on his head? Would I like, I don't know. Yeah. 
there are some nice Tolstoyan elements, elements, aspects to it. But at the same time, it was a nicely constructed, but very simple, simplistic, obvious. Just par- I mean, it felt like a country song or a children's story for Sunday school. Yeah, or it reminded, a- in it, I think we both had the same thought. It reminded me a lot of the parables of Joe Bailey. Yes, yes. People don't know our pastor, Tim Bailey, who people may know. His dad's name was Joe Bailey. He's an author, poet. He has a really great book on grief called yeah, View fantastic. from Rehearse. View from Rehearse. Uh, one of his best-selling works was a book called The Gospel Blimp, which sold, I don't know, something like a half million copies with Zondervan or something. It was pretty popular back in, a, in its day. And yeah, it's a pretty funny spoof of evangelicalism at the time. It was The Gospel Blimp and Other Parables, mm-hmm. and he had a bunch of little short stories and parables. And this this one would have been a really nice addition to that. Now, Tolstoy, no insult to Joe Bailey. Tolstoy is arguably the superior artist. Well, you might say that, yeah. Um, but it is striking how similar they are. Joe Bailey actually does have a story where Jesus shows up in like Metro Chicago or somewhere. I don't remember where it is. And, and walks Wheaton, around. Wheaton. Which is where he was living when he wrote it. But yeah, yeah. Not even just like, oh, they both, that both, each of those parables tell a similar story. The tone and tenor and the simplicity and the one plus one equals two of it all Mm -hmm. was very much in line with, they were just, the same idea of what makes a good short story. And it's not what we think makes a good short story. Well, and that's what makes it so hard to talk about is, for all I know, when Tolstoy wrote this, it was revolutionary. It right? was great. Like I mean, Brandon might would probably be able to speak to this if he was here, but oh well, he's not. Maybe he'll want to speak to it next time he shows up. But this, I don't know. Like, would people have been surprised by the ending? That seems like every third country song that I hear would it have actually? Would they in both these stories actually? Would they have been like, oh, the boy died? Would they have been like, oh, he did see Jesus? Would it have actually come as a surprise to them? Or it's just as possible that, that both Dostoevsky and Tolstoy are working in forms that people already understood and are just, you know, I'm going to try my hand at the old classic campfire parable campfire story. parable story. And I have no idea which one or where on the spectrum it falls. So, I, don't, I don't either. I just know that it didn't really do much for me, either of them. No, the I mean, the day. with Dostoevsky, I kind of hoped that it would just be obnoxiously emo and existed. Like, I, I really just hoped it would be like, of course he died. He died. Because everyone is terrible. Right. Nobody wanted to take in the orphan, just like you, because the world sucks and people die and innocent people are trampled and that's the way it is. Yeah. Notes from the underground, idiot. Like, <laughs> that. yeah. I mean, I was kind of like, he saw it and it turned out the vision was fake because he was just dying, you know, <laughs> like people do. <laughs> and like you're going to do. <laughs> the match, the little matchstick girl wasn't seeing her grandma. She wasn't seeing anything. She was having a hallucination before dying in the gutter <laughs> because society doesn't care about matchstick girls. Now, don't you feel bad? <laughs> Probably this could happen around the block from where you live and you wouldn't even know. Yeah. At least she didn't grow up and become a prostitute. I mean, that's kind of what I I wanted because it would have been fun to talk about at the very least. <laughs> but instead, it's just like mawkish. I mean, it's like the, he's yeah. at Christ's Christmas tree and his mom's there and all the mothers of all the children are dancing around 
And I mean, that is like, I'm not exaggerating. You would, you would be, <clears throat> you'd be forgiven for thinking I'm just sarcastically exaggerating. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to read some of it. You should. Oh, what a Christmas tree. And yet it was not a fir tree. He had never seen a tree like that. Where was he now? Everything was bright and shining and all around him were dolls, but no, they were not dolls. They were little boys and girls, only so bright and shining. They all came flying around him. They all kissed him, took him and carried him along with them. And he was flying himself. And he saw that his mother was looking at him and laughing joyfully. Mommy, mommy, oh, how nice it is here, mommy. And again, he kissed the children and wanted to tell them at once of those dolls in the shop windows. Who are you boys? Who are you girls? He asked, laughing and admiring them. This is Christ's Christmas tree, they answered. Christ always has a Christmas tree on this day for the little children who have no tree of their own. And he found out that all these little boys and girls were children just like himself, that some had been frozen in the baskets in which they had as babies been laid on the doorsteps of well-to-do Petersburg people. Others had been... (laughs) Okay, that's a little bit what you wanted. Others had been boarded out with Finnish women by the foundling and had been suffocated. Mm. Others had died at their starved mother's breasts in the Samara famine. Others had died in the third-class railway carriages from the foul air. And yet they were all here. They were all like angels about Christmas. And he was in the midst, he, capital H, was in the midst of them and held out his hands to them and blessed them and their sinful mothers. And the mothers of these children stood on one side weeping. Each one knew her boy or girl. And the children flew up to them and kissed them and wiped away their tears with their little hands and begged them not to weep because they were happy. And down below in the morning, the porter found the little dead body of the frozen child on the woodstack. They sought out his mother too. She had died before him. They met before the Lord God in heaven. And then Rod Serling comes out. Why have I made up such a story? So out of keeping with an ordinary diary and a writer's above all. And I promised two stories dealing with real events. But that is just it. I keep fancying that all this may have happened really. That is, what took place in the cellar and on the woodstack. But as for Christ's Christmas tree, I cannot tell you whether that could have happened or not. (laughs) The end. Like and share. <laughs> sounds like a Facebook. Like some horrible person would write something about like Trump's America, <laughs> like some dumb story about the border or something like that. But, but for all I know, Tolstoy was either doing, Dostoevsky, I should say, was either doing something new or he's playing with a form and he's just having a little fun. You know, here's my take on the classic form. I have no idea what it is or how to judge it. I don't know. What other valuable things can be offered people about this these russian christmas stories well i think one of the things that we just have to say out loud i'm gonna describe what happened this is a pretty nathanic thing that just happened yeah yeah yeah. but (laughs) it was not it did not happen at the instigation of nathan what happened was jake (laughs) took his shoe off placed it before him on the table talked for two or three (laughs) minutes and then was like Oh, what the heck is my shoe doing on the table? What on earth is my shoe doing on the table? (laughs) (laughs) And he put it on the ground like a a non-weirdo would would do. (laughs) Is there a pebble in the shoe? I think there was, yeah. Yeah. There was something in there that I I kept feeling and I wanted to shake out. For some reason, I was talking after I shook it out and I ended up putting it on the table like Mm -hmm. a total weirdo. Um, and then forgetting that I had ever done it. Yeah. What a shoe? This is my shoe. Why is this? Sh- it's a Christmas miracle. Christmas shoes. <laughs> it's the Christmas shoes. Please, Yay. sir, I want to buy these shoes. Oh, boy. It's, it's a vision. Yeah. Um, here's what I think is worth talking about. Okay. I don't remember. Perhaps you'll remember where this quote's from. Um, I think it's some turn of the century genius or something like that who said, you're talking about how difficult and high in art poetry is. Mm-hmm. 
And they said people who can't write poetry write short stories, and people who can't write short stories write novels. Something along those lines. Oh man, we've quoted that a million times. Who said that? Yeah. Maybe Fitzgerald. The point is, the tighter and more constricted the form, you know, it seems, I think, I think it seems to somebody who doesn't understand the craft of poetry or the difficulty of a well-told short, short story, that those are easier things to write. You just have to rhyme some things. Sure. And they only have to be four, eight lines long or five to 10 paragraphs. And boom, you've got a short story, right? False. Yeah, yeah, so that Abraham Lincoln quote, I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. Right. Short story is very, very difficult. Yeah, we were just talking about this uh, in uh, the episode that came out last week about The Last Jedi. We both agreed that the title crawl is the best title crawl in all of Star Wars. These are the kinds of uh, important nuances that we talk about (laughs) (laughs) on Sanity at the Movies and Star Wars episodes. And we agreed it was the best title crawl. And then we just talked about how, I think George Lucas actually says writing a a title crawl is like writing a haiku. It's that hard. Uh, The idea being Jake is now removing two small pebbles. He's, he's like the princess in the pea. There's a t- microscopic things that are really bothering him, apparently. Yeah. Um, but the the idea that you could actually write a five-minute scene of people on a, the bridge of a spaceship coming in and out and talking about the exposition, that would be a lot easier, actually, to write yeah. than to pack all your exposition expertly into a well-crafted little... Those title crawls aren't more than like three or four sentences, guys. Yeah. Like, but they set the context for the whole movie. And so that's hard to do. What do you include? What do you not include? How do you make the first order sound scary in just a sentence? How do you make Luke Skywalker sound noble? And just as it's actually might seem easy, but that's the kind of thing that you spend the most time on. And when you're writing the script, you just keep going over and over and over it, getting it right. And then then everybody shows up and laughs at how stupid it is. Right. Exactly. And you know, you can't really win with it. Like you put a whole bunch of effort into making this short little thing not inane and everybody's still going to laugh at how inane it is, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I think the short story is a lot like that. And who better to illustrate that than Tolstoy? He is a genius novelist, but you know what? He's going to have to take 1,500 pages to do it. Yeah, and those 1,500 pages all count. I mean, you can excerpt certain scenes and they would be good, but what's really good about Tolstoy is the massive accumulation of human detail. Yeah, like that all adds together to make this colossal achievement in, in, in whatever you want to call it, psychological realism. I don't know what you'd call it, but it's, it's the accumulation. It's the snowball effect, you know, a detail here, an observation there, and suddenly you have a masterpiece. Trying to figure out how to just pack that into one scene, a few hundred words, a little story. And tell it, make it be a complete story instead of one scene in a much, much bigger story. That's hard. You can become really gifted. You can become really good at that sort of thing if you consistently and work within those constraints in a disciplined way over a really long period of time. But man, so few people have mastered it. You know, it's disappointing when you pick up Tolstoy and you realize, oh, he never actually mastered this craft. Or if he, he, he mastered it in a way that just falls short of what I want and expect from somebody of his caliber of genius. There is a lot of mastery to the short story that Tolstoy wrote. But it's like, the reason I love Tolstoy, it turns out, is because I love to watch a guy run a marathon. And because he's a great athlete, I assume he can do the 100-yard dash or whatever. And it's like... Not not really. Not really. The skills actually aren't... His his running technique 
still masterful whether he's sprinting or running the marathon. You can still see it's the same not so great fast, athlete, but you know? exactly, yeah. He just like you know Joe Schmo can kick his butt in a sprint. Yeah, well, and and I think to speak to that, the story that's actually the good one of the three that we read is the Chekhov story, which you haven't read, but I, I, I recommend read, it. Yeah. It's depressing. It, well, it, Chekhov, it, it, I've read Chekhov short stories, other Chekhov short stories, and Chekhov is a good short story writer. He's a master of the form. This is not a question that Chekhov knows how to handle a short story. And he's a master of the detail that tells. I mean, that's what, you know, the famous thing that everybody always likes to say, Chekhov's gun. You know, if there's a gun in the first act, then it better go off in the third act. Every detail is there for a reason. Chekhov invented that notion. And so he's great at these little details that tell and that accumulate and paint a rich picture without actually having to spend a lot of time or a lot of words on it. Well, you know, he spells it out. Like, I mean, if you, what would be the very first criticism of this Dostoevsky story? There probably, if we were marking this up with a red pen, a number of early criticisms. But one of the ones we would be most insistent on would be this line right here. Touching his mother's face, he was surprised that she did not move at all and that she was as cold as the wall. Okay, we know what's going on there. Mm-hmm. It's very cold here, he thought. He stood a little, unconsciously letting his hands rest on the dead woman's shoulders. Hmm. Then he breathed on his fingers to warm them and then quietly fumbling for his dog. So... Just like he really felt like he had to nail that to the wall. Yeah. Oh, by the way, she's dead. But how much more powerful would it have been if you had been, you'd either just let people see, obviously she's dead, or if you'd even been more subtle about it, then he was surprised that she was dead and her body was cold. Because you're coming back to her her being dead. You're trying to have this moment where it's like surprise. It's kind of one of the punchlines is that they're, the punchline is that they're both dead. That's basically the story. Yeah. Is. So hints allude to it so that when you go back, you see it. Right. That she was dead. But the, let it be part of the the fi- that final impact since you're going for a really sentimental impact. And somebody might argue, and, well, Jake, you've read a million stories. You've seen a million Twilight Zones. You know she's dead no matter what because you know how this kind of story works. And I think that's actually true. But I think then yeah, that was, pays yeah, you a compliment. True. It pays you the compliment of, well, I know Jake knows. So- I didn't have to paint a picture for him. I just gave him a couple details, let him put it together, and he feels really smart that way. Which is what you want to do with with people is you don't want to make them feel talked down to. Right. Like if you if you tell people, and this is why we use this metaphor all the time, if you tell people two plus two equals four, they're going to look at you like... Uh, okay, thanks. No kidding. If you have a couple of equations, if you have a couple levels of equations going on throughout the story. And over here you have two plus two and over there you have two times seven. And over there you've got, you can make it as complex as you want Mm -hmm. for as many people as you want, you know, depending on how sophisticated you think your audience is, but you don't ever give them the answer to the equation. No, you let them put it together. And then they'll, they'll, they'll have that wonderful moment, that mini catharsis in their own brain and heart where, oh, it's four. And it's almost the same as solving a math problem. Right. You know, you actually get a little buzz of pleasure that you that you hardly even notice. You just know you're reading a good story because you figured it out. I mean, the classic example that I always encourage people to read is, the, uh, I think it's Hills Like White Elephants by Hemingway, which is a devastatingly <laughs> sad story. But, and the story's, spoiler alert, all about- I was thinking of Hemingway earlier too, yeah. It's all, it's all about a man who is pressuring his girl into getting an abortion because he just wants to live- the high life basically and you watch their relationship be ruined yeah by it and you and she agrees to it 
just to get him off her and back. And you know that their their lives, their relationship, and everything. And it's it's so sad. It's, it's devastating. It's devastating. It's the best thing Hemingway ever wrote. And except for <clears throat> baby shoes never worn. Except for baby shoes never worn, which is an even <laughs> cooler version of sadder. It, that's what I was thinking of earlier. When you get down to the idea of the detail that tells, like Chekhov invented it, Hemingway mastered it. Right. Baby shoes. Hemingway famously said, I think he actually, it, he'll have a little was, can, can you tell, what's the best story you can tell in four words? Yeah. And Hemingway's was, baby shoes never worn. Which is which is a very sad <laughs> short story, <laughs> and it could mean all kinds of things actually. But uh, I think it was six words for sale. For sale, baby shoes never worn. You're right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. But Hills Like White Elephants is a very short story, very simple. Never says the word abortion, but it's all the more powerful. If if it was just like I think we should get an abortion, he said, I don't want to. She said, it wouldn't be nearly as powerful as him just saying, Well, I think. Don't you think we'll be more happy? Don't you? Don't you don't you still want to have fun? And then it ends the the climax. She says, "Please, please, 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 please," and it's just a bunch of pleases. And then he's like, "Okay, okay," and she's like, "Okay," and they just go off. And it's one of my favorite short stories. It's so wonderful and so sad, but he doesn't have to tell you anything. Do you feel better? He asked. I feel fine. She said, "There's nothing wrong with me. I feel fine." That's how it ends. That's how it ends. And. It's a very sad story, but it also gives a certain kind of aesthetic pleasure because you as a reader are like, oh, people don't usually say that they feel fine. I mean, this is the equation that your brain does. It doesn't do it this stupidly, but oh, if someone says I feel fine twice, it's probably because they feel terrible and are trying to mask their emotions. There's a, what, oh my goodness, this story is so short, but uh, yeah, there's your please. Would you please, 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 please stop talking? Yes. (laughs) What happens in the course of this little short story is it goes from two lovers getting drinks to this like shift into coldness and being shut off to each other. Like, you know, this, this relationship is over by the time that this story ends and yeah. Everything they're trying to protect by killing this baby is dead. Yeah. They kill the relationship with the child. And that's part of the brilliance of it. And on a more simple level, you understand that the woman doesn't want it and the man does. But the man never says, like, you have to do this. He just says, well, I want you to have what you want. Don't you want this? Don't you want this? And haven't you been enjoying yourself? All these lines like this. And the woman's getting more edgy and hysterical about it. What will we do afterward? We'll be fine afterward, just like we were before. What makes you think so? Well, it's the only thing that bothers us. It's the only thing that's made us unhappy. The girl looked at the bead curtain, put her hand out, and took hold of two of the strings of beads. And you think then we'll be all right and be happy? I know we will. You don't have to be afraid. I've known lots of people that have done it. So have I, said the girl, and afterward they were also happy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the man said, if you don't want to, you don't have to. I wouldn't have you do it if you didn't want to, but I know it's perfectly simple. And do you really want to? I think it's the best thing to do, but I don't want you to do it if you don't really want to. And if I do it, you'll be happy and things will be like they were and you'll love me. I love you now. You know I love you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's, it's so on sad. On it's on. so sad. Oh, man. Page later. I don't want you to do anything that you don't want to do. <laughs> Nor that isn't good for me, she said. I know. Could we have another beer? <laughs> 
All right, but you've got to realize, I realized the girl said, can we maybe just stop talking? They sat down at the table and the girl looked across at the hills on the dry side of the valley and the man looked at her and at the table. You've got to realize, he said, that I don't want you to do it if you don't want to. I'm perfectly willing to go through with it if it means anything to you. Doesn't it mean anything to you? We could get along. Of course it does, but I don't want anybody but you. I don't want anyone else. And I know it's perfectly simple. Yes, you know it's perfectly simple. It's all right for you to say that, but I do know it. Would you do something for me now? I'd do anything for you. Would you please, 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 please stop talking? That's a story right there. And the final line, do you feel better? He asked. I feel fine. She said, nothing's wrong with me. I feel fine. Their relationship is dead. She hates you. <laughs> she hates you. <laughs> she will never forgive you. Yeah. And you are full of, it's Christmas. Yeah. Like, is... she knows that you are lying. hmm And she knows it's over. Yeah. Every time you say, oh, well, you can do whatever you want. Come on, dude. Like, well, that's a cheerful subject for our episode that's dropping on December 25th. Yep. You don't want to say anything else about Dostoevsky or Tolstoy? <laughs> Hemingway they were not when it came to the short story. No, only Hemingway was Hemingway. Well, I think the reason I wanted to go there is, you know, we, we've been pretty hard on a bunch of short stories lately. We got a, a, a uh, volume of shorts. We were even hard on Dubliners. We were, um, although The Dead is arguably one of the top 10 short stories ever written. The Dead's truly great. But we've been pretty hard on lots of the short stories that we've come across mm-hmm. uh, on this show. We really ought to, if there's a place where we ought to cut people more slack, it's probably on the short story. Well, it occurs to me that a short story exhausts its usefulness, perhaps. Let me try this theory out, at least. A short story is more prone to have time devour it than a novel. You know what I mean? Like, you read a novel that's getting a little creaky and becoming, you know, the formula has been done again and again since then, and it feels a little fresh. There's just enough material in it and enough in it that there's probably going to be still some stuff that feels fresh. But a short story oftentimes consists of one idea or one punchline or one thing. And How many stories are, oh, actually, they died at the end. Right, exactly. Like, and how, how many, many of stories those... do you know? And it's not just like, how many short stories have you read like that? How many Saturday morning cartoons? Right. How many Bugs Movies, Bunny right. cartoons? Exactly. How many movies how many tv shows how many it's just like it's, it's like you watch an old uh marx brothers movie Tales of you, the you might not episodes, laugh like, that much but you'll there'll be something that'll make you laugh in there you watch an old charlie chaplin short he walks up he slips on a banana well you know what a i grew up people, with roadrunner and they all slipped on bananas it's not charlie chaplin's fault it doesn't mean he wasn't a genius it just means time's kind of eaten it up it's cannibalized it it's used you know not everything retains its freshness it's fine it's how living in space and time works. Yeah, and and that's why we have Brandon. I mean, there are lots of reasons that Brandon on the show, but that's one real value that Brandon brings to this show is he can say, "No, wait a minute, guys. This is actually the first right time in history anybody had thought to tell a story like this where you know, oh, they were dead, right? Or at least, and I would then say, Brandon, garbage. I bet." Millions of people come up with stories like that around a campfire. Right. And you say, yeah, sure, fine. But on black and white. This is where it's done. 
Well, that's such an important thing. You know, I I don't think I don't know that that's true of Dostoevsky or not, but it is true that Dostoevsky was writing almost 150 plus years ago. Right. Right. There are a lot of things that were different. There also just wasn't mass media. We cannibal. You have to understand how we devour story at an alarming rate. You know, Saturday morning cartoons, you learned all the formulas. Jake read Tales from the Script. The Tales from the Script. Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, sorry. Goosebumps. He learned all the horror formulas such that we read The Outsider and it's like, oh, the guy, the narrator's the monster. How exciting. That's not necessarily H.P. Lovecraft's fault, although that was a pretty, it is because that was a pretty hoary cliche even then. But it's like earlier generations wouldn't have had the same access, the same volumni. How do you say that word? Volumnius? That can't be right. Volum... No, no, I'm confused. Volum... Vol... Oh, man. Jake's looking at... Voluminous. Voluminous access to story that we did. Well, I mean, even... I mean, that's what what we got growing up, where we had access to these libraries of books and cheap paperbacks and... Saturday morning cartoons, whatever it was. But just think about the fact that... I didn't think about this story until a couple of hours ago, and then I Googled it, and then I brought it up, and I read it in time to come discuss it. Right. Like, everything is at my fingertips. I can have it all. Yeah. Anyhow, you think of Dickens, and you think of people waiting at the ports for the next edition. Did little Nell die? There's stories of the guy, (coughs) guys on the ports yelling to the boat, like, boatman. Hey, did little Nell die? And them yelling back because they couldn't wait. Yeah. Because that's how exciting it was. And so like that was it. You got your installment from Dickens once a month or whatever. And you treasured it. And you were glad that Dickens wrote 4,000 words where two would have done because you just wanted a little bit more. I often think of you watch an old movie. Sometimes they're so boring. They're so uh, what we like to call shoe leather where somebody's just walking around. And it's not because people liked to be bored. It's because, wow, James Bond is in Istanbul. I don't have Google. I don't have Google image search. I don't know. I, I don't see news stories that have Istanbul. I don't know what Istanbul looks like. I've seen old black and white pictures in my crappy school encyclopedia of Istanbul. So the fact that Sean Connery is just boringly walking around Istanbul. Super interesting. It's thrilling. It's exciting. It's, 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 it's made, a cultural experience. Though. Yeah, this is great. This is like, this is what I bought my ticket for. And we have... Zero the cool conception. thing about James Bond is like, man, they're going to show me some part of the world maybe I've never seen. Right. And if they watched a Daniel Craig movie, maybe they'd find it exciting, but I think they'd actually be a little disappointed that he doesn't slow down and- Let them see, let them see what's cool about being in- Country know, X, whatever it is, yeah. wherever he finds himself. It's like, oh, uh, well, part of the deal was we get to see this. And so that doesn't make the old movies bad. It doesn't make the new movies bad. It doesn't- really mean anything it's just something that you have to be aware of people did not consume images at the rate that they consume them or have the volume of images available to them or or available to, the, to them as quickly then and i think it's the same thing with story formulas and with story in general we just have a lot more of it an experience that i think our generation might have been the first to have certainly that your kids have is your kids will see the parody of something before they ever see the thing yeah you know, I mean, I don't have any specific examples, but I know it was true for me. I grew up with The Simpsons and they're spoofing all these old movies. I didn't know what the spoof was. I just knew Homer Simpson did a funny thing, had a voice. Oh, that's you know, Bugs Bunny. You watch old Bugs Bunny cartoons and they're doing like yeah, Humphrey absolutely. Bogart and stuff. And you don't know Bogart, but you do know 
Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny. They're doing Cagney all the time. Right. It's like, who's Cagney? Yep. We don't know Cagney. So you can't be too hard on old stuff. But at the same time, I kind of always want to be honest about it. You know, there's a certain kind of person that adjusts for, that adjusts appropriately and then tries and pretends like it actually hits them the same way it would someone from 100 years ago. Tolstoy would have no patience for that. If you've read War and Peace, if you're reading it with this, there's a scene where we're at the opera and he's like, well, they were singing and there was cardboard and yeah. <laughs> there's some other people singing and waving their arms around. and <laughs> Yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I think I, I actually have War and Peace right here and I'll read just a little bit. Yeah, you should. Of this exact thing because people really signed up to hear me read a lot today. The stage consisted of flat boards in the middle with painted pieces of cardboard on the sides representing trees and and canvas stretched over boards at the back. In the middle of the stage sat girls in red bodices and white skirts. One very fat in a white silk dress sat apart on a low stool with a piece of green cardboard glued to the back of it. They were all singing something. When they finished their song, the girl in white went up to the prompter's box, and a man with tight silk breeches on his fat legs and with a feather and a dagger came up to her and began singing and spreading his arms. The man in tight breeches sang alone, then she sang. Then they both fell silent, music began to play, and the man began to touch the hand of the girl in the white dress with his fingers, evidently waiting for the beat again so as to begin his part with her. They sang together, and everybody in the theater clapped and shouted, and the man and the woman on stage who represented lovers began to bow, smiling and spreading their arms. Oh, man. (laughs) Tolstoy's a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) After the country and with the serious mood she was in, Natasha found all this wild and astonishing. She was unable to follow the course of the opera. She could not even hear the music. She saw only painted cardboard and strangely dressed up men and women who moved, talked, and sang strangely in the bright light. She knew what it was all supposed to represent, but it was also pretentiously false and unnatural that she felt first embarrassed for the performers and then found them ridiculous. She looked around at the faces of the spectators, seeking in them the same feeling of mockery and perplexity that was in her, but all the faces were attentive to what what was taking place on stage and expressed admiration. Feigned, it seemed to Natasha. That must be how it's supposed to be, she thought. She kept looking alternately now at the rows of blah, 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 blah. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think Tolstoy's kind of a jerk there. I mean, it's he perfectly captures the, he really Natasha. Hates the opera. <laughs> it's like you could go to a wedding and be like, and then the man grabbed some cake, and, and you could make it sound stupid by yeah. just describing in the most clinical way what people are doing. But it's great. It's a perfect way of capturing how Natasha surely felt and how we've all felt when we found ourselves. I think some of us have been to operas or to things like that. It's just like, why are these goofy people (laughs) singing? What's what's going on here? Oh, I've been to operas and to the ballet. And that's the other thing. They start doing some ballet a little bit later. In the second act, we're sorry, I just caught my eye. In the second act, there were pieces of cardboard representing monuments, and there was a hole in the canvas representing the mood, the moon. And the shades were raised over the footlights, and the horns and double basses began to play in the bass clef, and from right and left came many people in black mantles. The people began to wave their arms, and in their hands there were something like daggers. Then some other people came running and began to drag away the girl who used to be wearing a white dress, but was now wearing a light blue one. They did not drag her away at once, but sang with her for a long time, and only then dragged her away. And in the wings, something iron was struck three times, and everyone knelt and began to sing a prayer. All this performing was interrupted several times by the rapturous shouts of the spectators. (laughs) And then they start coming and waving their arms again, and jumping and hitting their feet together. (laughs) Folks, 
If you decided not to read War and Peace with us because it was too intimidating, I just want to encourage you. It's a wonderful book, and it's not that much longer than lots of things that you have read in your life if you are someone who reads novels at all. So probably not that much. It'd be interesting to see how War and Peace compares to Deathly Hollows, just as one example. I know it's longer, but... The one thing, you do have to enjoy reading and character studies. You know what... what Potter does is it's a page turner, it's a pot boiler, it's plot driven. This is not plot driven. No, not at all. And so it's not going to be like, oh, I've got to read the next chapter because I got to figure out what's going to happen next. That it almost never happens. Yeah, it does. It happens a few times. You're actually kind of in one of those places right now. I am in one of those places right now. I keep waiting for Prince Andre to return. Well, there's a bunch of, there's, there's a good heap, an extra heaping of plot in that particular part. But uh, uh, yeah, that's all being set up for me. They're making plays on poor Natasha from yep. all around. Yeah, got to watch out for that Dolokhov and some of those those characters. Well, we should probably call it an episode. The kids. The Kurrigans, bad people. Yeah. They're bad people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If they ruin it, poor Natasha, which they are going to, of course they are. Yep, they're pretty bad. I love Andre. So. Yeah, he's the best. He's probably the the coolest from this novel although i hate them all i guess the kids have to open their presents now what i know you don't want to i know you kids wish that this episode would go another hour or two before you could rip open your underwear and your toys and all that crap and we wish that we could give you that christmas gift but you know what you should just be thankful for what you got yeah we kept you from having to do the other stuff for as long as we possibly could i guess we could do donor shout outs that'll That'll oh, take up some time. Take up some time, as it often does. Jake, just give a nice Merry Christmas to these people in whatever words or formula that you want to use. It is Christmas Day, and I think they all deserve a happy Christmas shout out for being the greatest patrons in the world. Does any podcast have better patrons than The Booking Jake? No. It's really true. It's really true. I, I feel it deep in my bones. I feel it deep in my bones as well. And so... Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. Merry Christmas. The Artful Anthony Dodger. Merry Christmas. Little Anthony's Cigar Merry Store. Merry Christmas. I hope some people are smoking cigars they bought there for Christmas. We've smoked some cigars. Yeah, and we promised we'd do like a paywall review or something. We're still going to get to that. We just uh, have not been able to smoke cigars with Brandon yet, so it'll happen, folks. It's this combination. We can't actually smoke them in the studio. Yeah, it's really cold it's outside. It's cold outside, and the only opportunities we have to get together are nights where we're recording. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't want us to not do a booking episode in order to smoke cigars as much as we might like to do that. So we'll get to them, yeah. and we look we'll forward make, to them. We'll make a time. And Jake and I both did have a cigar each, and they were absolutely fantastic. The Immortal Chelsea E. Merry Christmas. Little Beam and Little, or no, I'm sorry. Jimmy I'm Beam so and sorry, Little Jimmy. Annie Oakley. Uh, Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Merry Christmas. Lily of the Valley. Merry Christmas. Andrew and Esther the Lovebirds. Merry Christmas. The Keith Master. Merry Christmas. David's, we'll say Merry, Merry Men Trucking. Mighty Crisp. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. Merry Christmas. Little Baby Sacks of Presents. Jay and Ooh. Katie, who are cold and love cheese and also cs lewis until we have faces including until we have it including until we have it merry bah humbug we'll say yeah no that's cs lewis we'll say merry princess of wonder and happiness mother beth merry christmas console prime adam merry christmas jeremy the red tatted lord <laughs> of 
Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Uh, Nathan, not me. Merry Christmas. Maya! Maya! Christmas, Christmas, everybody! Ryan, the red-suited Avenger, and Merry Judith of the Ladies of Just... Merry Christmas. Just Ice. Merry Christmas. Danny the Dude. Merry Christmas. DJ Sammy. M- Merry... Gee, I'd like my front teeth. Merry Christmas. Benny and Danny. Ty Merry Christmas. Eric and Catherine Merry from Christmas. Yon Window Breaks, Professor and Lady X, Merry Christmas. Lavender's Green, Dylan Dylan, Noah Constrictor, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Merry Cheap, Merry Christmas, The Fair and Fragrant, Merry, Merry Maiden Chloe, Six Packs Act with a Mean Attack and Catherine Christmas. with a Knack for Laying Down a Smack, Anthony, that's his name, who is cold oh, and hates Anthony, life, Anthony, I have to apologize, apologize to you, I forgot your name on a Behind the Paywall video. Our apologies. Uh, life, Merry Liberty, Christmas. and the Pursuit of Cheese. Jiu-Jitsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. Merry Christmas. Rachel. Rachel. Leopard Tank Thomas. Merry Christmas. I love all our patrons. I love these most recent patrons. Midnight Ninja Ellen. Merry Christmas. Queen Kangeta. Merry Christmas. And of course, Return of the Jedediah. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to all. And to all. A good night. Or a good fright. <laughs> I got it in there. <laughs> you did it again, I old did it boy. Again. <laughs> charming, absolutely charming. And we're getting today. Uh, it was me and Jake, Brandon. We wish you well. Hopefully, you're better by now. We are recording this episode in advance. Uh, Merry Christmas to everybody. Go to patreon.com forward slash the booking to support us. Jake, this is the last episode of 2019. What do you want to say? Pretty good year, right? Pretty good year. Another great year of booking. Looking forward to year number five. Can you believe we're going into our fifth year of doing Pretty this amazing. podcast? Been a while, and we're still <laughs> <It's>, yeah, <laughs> we're still enjoying it. Uh, so we'll see you next year for some Tolstoy, and Brandon will be back. And happy reading is not how I want to end this episode. I want a better catchphrase. I don't want to say. We happy. have really cool music that can just cut in. Yeah, the music will just cut. In. 